We're in a series of messages. The title of the series is Believe This. And uh, last week we spoke of uh, the uh, magnificent God, our magnificent God. And today we're looking at Jesus saves. Isaiah 53, we're going to look at verses 4 through 7 in just a moment. Max Lucado writes, It rests on the timeline of history like a compelling diamond. Its tragedy summons all sufferers. Its absurdity attracts all cynics. Its hope lures all searchers. History has idolized and despised it, gold-plated and burned it, worn it and trashed it. History has done everything but ignore it. How could you ignore such a piece of lumber? Suspended on its beams is the greatest claim in history, a crucified carpenter claiming to be God on earth. Divine, eternal, the death slayer. Never has timber been regarded so sacred. No wonder the Apostle Paul called the cross event the core of the gospel. Its bottom line, sobering. If the account is true, it is history's hinge. If not, the cross is history's hoax. And so we ask the question today, what is it? What is it to you? Is it the hinge of all that you believe and hope for, or is it a hoax? Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silence, so he opened not his mouth. Now what does this say in very clear and simple terms. Well, it states the obvious. Jesus saves. In the song, Jesus Saves, the wonderful song that, that uh, we sang for many, many years and still sing occasionally and should sing more. No comment on your singing, Larry. You do a great job. But in that song, the phrase Jesus saves is repeated Four times in four verses, that's 24 times the phrase, Jesus saves, is repeated. It could be 24 more times and still not be an overkill. Jesus Christ is our only Savior. That is a powerful truth. Let me give you the truth of Jesus saving from the ground up, from the very bottom up. First of all, people are lost. Luke 19.10 For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now that's me and that's you at some point in our lives. There are variations of being lost or having lost something. We may have lost our keys. We lose our vision and we have to buy glasses and then we lose our glasses. 
We've lost money in the stock market. We could go on, but let me ask you this. Have you ever just experienced being lost? I mean, just being really lost and afraid? When I was a, a young boy, I was riding in the car with my favorite sister. That's not the kind of car that we were riding in. That's the only picture that I could find. We were riding in a 1959 Plymouth Fury, you know, the ones with the big wings on the back. I was in the car with my favorite sister, Jean, who, by the way, is in her last days or or weeks. And uh, soon, Jean will be going home to the Lord, and uh, I shall see her like she used to be and better than she used to be when I see her in heaven. She's sadly is dealing with, with uh, advanced dementia. But we were in Clarksville, Tennessee. That's uh, just outside of Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And we took a wrong turn as we were going back to her house from a tent revival. In Tennessee, they still have tent revivals. And in Tennessee, they still have some roads that go through creeks. I don't know if you've ever been through a, to a road that went through a creek, but we had, there was a road that went through a creek, and she got down into that road. She followed it down and got into that creek bed, and for some reason felt like she needed to turn around in that creek bed. And it, it was, I was just a young boy. I was probably eight, nine, no more than 10 years old for sure, but I was just a young boy, and it was a little scary for me, I'll just tell you right now. And we started to turn that, or she started to turn that car around, when all of a sudden, an old fence from out of nowhere reached up and grabbed the bumper of her car. And that fence was scraping and pulling on that bumper and scared both of us. Well, my sister, in her wonderful protective mode of me, said, please get out and see what that is. <clears throat> and so I got out, and I, I went to that old fence. I went to the back of that car, and uh, I can still picture it right now, and I was so very scared. And there was that fence hung on the bumper of the car, and I took that fence from the bumper of the car, and, and we got back in, and she finished her turnaround, and, and she got out of there. Let me tell you, we were lost, and we were afraid. In this world, there are a lot of lost and afraid people. You may be one of them. You may be lost and afraid of dying. You may be lost and afraid that if you died, you wouldn't go to be with the Lord. You may be afraid of what awaits in eternity. People are lost. I've got good news for you if you're a lost person today. Lost people are loved. You're not hated. You're not despised. You're loved John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Everybody wants to be loved. Everybody does. There's no better candidate to be loved than the person who is lost because God so loved the world that he gave his only son for you and for me when we're lost. 
If you want to share Jesus with someone, the best candidate you can find is someone who is lost. If you want to share Jesus with someone who is likely to be receptive, find someone who is lost and they know that they're lost. They admit that they're lost. I used to love to preach in the women's prison over on Capitol Circle, the federal prison there, because the women would come in there and I would preach the gospel to them and they wore their lost condition in a number on their uniform. It was right there for everybody to read. And I used to tell them, I love to speak to you because you wear your, you number your being, you number your sins and put them on your uniform. And they laugh and those of them who had been saved would say, that's right. That's exactly right. Lost people can take heart. And by the way, you don't have to be in prison to be lost. It's, it's good news for somebody who is lost to hear that Jesus loves the lost. So if you're lost, you say, well, Pastor Ray, I showed up at church today. <laughs> I mean, after Florida State got murdered, I showed up at church today. Everybody else is at home licking their wounds, but I showed up at church today. It's all right. You may still be lost. You may be a gator. Or something else. But Seminoles and gators and hurricanes and bulldogs and even people at Notre Dame are lost. Even Louisville Cardinals are lost. Are you uncertain of your eternity? He said, you know what, preacher? I am a little uncertain of my eternity. Well, let me say this. A little uncertain about your eternity is not good. You want to be absolutely certain about your eternity. That's the third great thing I've got to tell you about Jesus saving. Jesus saves lost people. This is a doctrinal truth. Everyone who is now saved was once lost. Oftentimes people will come to the fellowship of God's house and they have that sense of being lost and they say, I'm lost, I need to be saved. And they look around and they say, man, none of these people were ever lost. Well, everybody who's ever been saved was lost first. If you're lost, if you're unsure of your eternity, you should look around. Everybody here was once lost. Everybody was. I was once lost. I'm still a sinner saved by grace. I'm not a lost sinner today. I'm a saved sinner, but I was once lost, and then I was found. Was blind, now I see. If you're lost, you don't have to be ashamed of being lost. You just need to be found. Let me give you a couple of verses that will help you to understand how lost all of us are. Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Well, then why are you preaching to us? Because I am a sinner who was lost, saved by grace, and then God, in spite of my continued tendency towards sin, put his hand on my life and said, I'm going to call you to preach the word of God. You're still a sinner, but now you are a saved and called sinner. I could come and sit where you are and somebody else preach the sermon and they would still, it'd just be a, an exchange of sinners in the pulpit. 
Romans 3.23 says it, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the first step in being saved is to be lost. Self-righteous people don't get saved until they get lost. When they get lost, then they get saved. In looking at the atonement for sins, we must come to understand and believe that Jesus saves and that he saves lost people. In this series, Believe This, here's the first thing I want you to believe today. Believe this, Jesus saves. Here's the second thing. Jesus saves by grace. In 2004, the movie, The Passion of the Christ, telling of the last 12 hours of Jesus' life, was released into theaters. When it came out, some of you will remember this, our church rented out the theater for a showing, and it was a wonderful event for the church family, and I think everybody that attended were just, we came out stunned by the impact of the the depiction of those last 12 hours. However, that movie had some critics. They claimed that it was too violent and too graphic. Some said that it was anti-Semitic. Though the producer filmed his own hand nailing Jesus to the cross, and the reason he said that, he said, we're all equally guilty in Jesus' death, and he's absolutely right. Others shared no responsibility for the, the crucifixion of Jesus. And people are still criticizing the movie. Brad Pitt recently in, a, in an interview mentioned that he'd like to make a film about Pontius Pilate. And then he added, it won't be for the passion crowd. And he was talking about the passion of the Christ. The person that was interviewing him spoke of the passion of the Christ, and he said, that's what drove me out of the church. And Pitt, laughing, said, I felt like I was watching an L. Ron Hubbard propaganda film, referring to the Scientology leader, the science fiction writer. By the way, let me just stop here and and say a word about this. I'm just going to say a word about this. I'm not trying to be as mean as it's going to sound. Why do we flock to the theaters to to, uh, view the movies of these pagan people in Hollywood who absolutely despise the cross of Jesus Christ. Why do we do that? You ought to make a little mark in your head once in a while and say, okay, well, there's that one. There was a letter back in when the, the movie was released, there was a letter to the editor in the Daytona News Journal from a woman in Port Orange, Florida, And she wrote after viewing the movie, personally, I have no problem believing what Jesus did, but I want no responsibility for it. I'll pay for my own sins. I usually do. Thank you very much. I would never want anyone to go through so much suffering for me. It's kind of shocking to hear somebody say something like that, but she's absolutely right. Either Jesus pays for our sins or we pay for them ourselves. She's absolutely right. When Jesus pays for our sins, it's not a payment of guilt, however. It's a payment of grace because grace is a gift. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Now, everybody likes to receive a gift. I do. You do. All of us do. 
We like them at Christmas. We like them at anniversaries. We like them at birthdays. We like them for no reason at all. I have a gift for you. I'll take it. No reason at all. We, we like them. Everyone will accept a gift with one exception. People often turn down the gift of God's grace. The greatest gift ever, they turn it down. And for some reason, they think there's baggage that comes with the gift of God's grace. But there's no baggage with the gift of God's grace. There's forgiveness with the gift of God's grace. Grace is a gift, and this is a bit redundant, but grace is a free gift. To say free gift is redundant, but you can't overstate the impact of how available it is and how it changes our lives. It's free. It's absolutely free. Romans 3.24, and are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You know what the world's fastest growing religion is? It's not Christianity. It's not Buddhism. You know what it is, don't you? Islam. It's the fastest growing religion in the world. And there's such huge differences between Islam and Christianity. Perhaps the greatest difference is in what the Muslims believe about atonement and what Christians believe about atonement. Muslims believe that they receive salvation by rigidly doing works for Allah. Christians believe that we cannot earn salvation because it is a gift from God purchased by His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross of Calvary. We can't possibly earn it. And that's true. Grace is a gift. It is a gift of faith. Let's go back to Ephesians 2 again in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. God's grace comes to us in the vessel of faith. It rides in the vessel of faith. If grace is a gift, we go pick it up in our faith. Not all religions, even those that believe in Jesus, teach salvation by grace through faith. Every motivation we have for serving Jesus is out of a heart of gratitude for his gift of grace. We are motivated by grace, not by guilt. The atonement for, for our sins is not in works we do to earn salvation. It's not decided by the church we attend or how much money we give. Giving money to the church and being faithful to him in our lives and through his church are acts of gratitude for a believer who understands that grace is a gift of faith. It's just gratitude. I'm just thankful. This is my reasonable service. Thank you so much. You've been so nice to me. What can I do for you? It's that kind of a spirit. It's that kind of an attitude. What I want you to believe this morning is that Jesus saves. And that Jesus saves by grace. And Jesus saves by grace that satisfies. Completely satisfies. I've used the word atonement several times. The word atonement means satisfaction. Jesus is our satisfaction for the sin problem. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, he is our satisfaction 
for the Father. How can Jesus be a satisfaction for the Father? How is the Father satisfied in his son's death? Well, there's two levels in which Jesus is the satisfaction for the Father. First of all, he's the satisfaction for the Father's holiness. With man being born in sin and then man choosing sin and man living in sin, there's no way to satisfy the holiness of a spotless God, no way at all, unless there was a spotless lamb of sacrifice who could satisfy the spotless God. That spotless lamb of sacrifice is Jesus Christ. He is the satisfaction for God's purity and holiness. 1 Peter 1.18 knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus is the satisfaction for the Father's holiness. He is the satisfaction for the Father's love. Two things are satisfied in Jesus as far as the Father's concerned. His holiness because he can't allow sin into heaven, and his love, because he loves sinners enough that he wanted them to come to heaven. 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. If, if God could have a conflict, and I don't think that God can have a conflict, but if he could, it would be this. He is holy and will not allow unholiness, sin into heaven. However, he also loves and wants us to go to heaven at the end of this life. Jesus satisfies both of those issues for him. Jesus saves, and that satisfies the Father. You know who else it satisfies? It's a satisfaction for Jesus. Jesus is satisfied with it. He is. He is absolutely satisfied with salvation. Let me give you an example to bear this out. Two brothers, two little boys, brothers, were playing on a, the sandbanks by the river. And they ran up a large sandbank, a big mound of sand. And the mound wasn't solid. And their weight caused them to start sinking, and they sunk quickly. And the boys didn't return home for dinner. The family and some neighbors began to search for them, and they found them down by the Creekside, the riverside. And the, they found the younger brother, and he was unconscious. Only his head and shoulders were sticking out of the sand. When they cleared the sand away, he began to wake up. And they said, where's your brother? He said, I'm on his shoulders. With the sacrifice of his own life, the older brother lifted up the younger brother to safety. The sacrificial love of the older brother was the foundation for the younger brother's salvation. That is the story of Jesus. He gave his life for ours. We are standing on his shoulders that we might get to heaven. He's our atonement. 
He is our satisfaction for sins, and he is satisfied with that. He's satisfied with his obedience. He's satisfied with his sacrifice. He's satisfied with what he's, he's done. He doesn't regret it. He doesn't say, oh, I wish this didn't have to happen. He doesn't say, oh, I, this was so hard on me. He is absolutely satisfied with it. Philippians 2, 7 but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus saves by grace and he satisfies. He satisfies the Father. He satisfies himself. And let me just say this to you. He's the satisfaction for sinners. He's our satisfaction. 1 John 2 and verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Everyone and anyone in this world, anyone can find Jesus Christ as the answer for their sin. Anyone. Everything that we need to get to heaven, everything that we need to open heaven before us, everything that we need to live eternally in glory, everything is in Jesus Christ. I'll close with this story. Many years ago, there was a wealthy man who shared a passion for art. He shared this passion with his son. They had priceless works of art on the walls of their huge estate, their stately home. And one day, with their nation at war, the son left to serve his country. After only a few weeks, his father got the telegram that no parent would ever want to get. His son had died. He had died trying to rescue a fellow soldier who was under fire and in trouble. Well, you would understand that the man was so distraught and he sat lonely in his darkened estate, this beautiful palatial home, but there was nobody there to share it any longer. And one morning, there was a knock that came to the door. He went to the door and there stood a soldier on the porch. The soldier had a very large package. And he said, I was a friend of your son. I was the one that he was rescuing when he died. May I come in for a few minutes? I have something I'd like to show you. Well, the soldier went in and he told the father that he was something of an artist and he gave the father the large package and it was a portrait of his son. The rest of the world would never think it to be a great work of art, but my goodness, it was priceless to that dad. It captured the face of his son in striking detail. He hung the portrait over the fireplace, pushing aside valuable works of art. The painting of his son, obviously and expectedly so, became his most prized possession, his most prized work of art. Eventually, he too died, and when he died, the art world awaited with great anticipation the auction of all of his masterpieces. 
And so the day arrived and the art collectors from around the world gathered and they came to bid on the most spectacular paintings, collection of paintings by a private owner. And the auction began. <clears throat> but it began <clears throat> with a painting that wasn't on anybody's list. <clears throat> it was the painting of the man's son. The auctioneer, the auctioneer asked for <clears throat> an opening bid, but the room was silent. Who'll open the bid with a hundred dollars? Excuse me, <clears throat> the auctioneer asked, but nobody spoke. Finally, <clears throat> someone said, Who cares about that painting? It's a picture of his son. Let's move on to the good stuff. The auctioneer said, nope, we have to sell this one first. Now, who will take the sun? Well, a neighbor of the old man said, I'll give $50, that's all I have. But I knew the boy and I'd like to have it. The auctioneer said, going once, going twice, gone. And the gavel fell. Cheers filled the room. And someone said, now let's bid on the real art. The auctioneer looked at the room filled with people and he said, this auction is ended. They were stunned. One spoke up, what do you mean it's over? We didn't come here for the painting of someone's son. There are millions of dollars worth of art here. What's going on? Here's what the auctioneer said. Well, it's very simple. According to the will of the Father, whoever takes the Son gets it all. And there it is. Jesus is our atonement for sin. And when we take Him, we get it all.